Hello there, and welcome to In the PI Seat, the podcast where we discuss the transition from postdoc to independent researcher and the challenges of this new role. I am your host, Camila Valenzuela, and today we have Thibaut Brunet, a G5 group leader at Institut Pasteur in Paris. Welcome to the show. Hi, excited to be here. I will first like to say that your model organism is absolutely amazing. Uh, I think it's pronounced guanoflagellate. That's, that's correct. Okay, perfect. Um, and for the listeners that are not familiar with, with this very particular model, can you describe it briefly? Uh, yes. So basically, um, our motivation is that we were interested in the very beginning of animal evolution. And in particular, we are interested in a very big transition, which was the switch from unicellular organisms to multicellular uh, organisms. And so basically, that's the origin of multicellularity. It's also the origin of embryonic development. Uh, um, and um, um, we researched this topic by actually looking at the group of species that are the closest living relatives of all animals. So all animals, from sponges to jellyfish to elephants to, to humans, um, descend from a single common ancestor. And uh, we know that that last common ancestor was already a fairly complex organism. It was already multicellular, it already had diverse cell types, it already had a controlled shape, it went through morphogenesis in its development. And so we are essentially interested in how that complexity evolved, so before the last common animal ancestor. And uh, to do that, we actually look at the closest living relatives of animals, and it turns out that it's a group of single-cell eukaryotes, which uh, are called the coenoflagellates. And uh, so they live in aquatic environments all over the world. You find coenoflagellates everywhere, in rivers, in lakes, in the ocean. You almost certainly have eaten coenoflagellates if you ever uh, swam in the ocean uh, by accident. And uh, I say they're single cells, but in fact, that's not always completely true. In some conditions, some coenoflagellate species can develop into colonies. And those colonies uh, resemble, uh, they have different shapes depending on the species. But some of them resemble, to some extent, early animal embryos. Some of them are capable of collective behavior. That's the case of one of the species we study in the lab. And basically, we are interested in uh, really understanding. So my lab's interest is morphogenesis. So we're interested in understanding how the shape of these colonies is controlled and how it emerges from the shape of the cells and from the interaction between cells. So that's basically the, the, what captivates us in a nutshell. That's pretty nice. Yeah, they're, they're really... Really, to, now that you said that uh, I probably ate some of them um, statistically by swimming, statistically, then yes. oh. yeah. wonderful. I think there's a statistic that says that we eat like one spider like every few years while sleeping. So oh, yeah, we swallow eight eight spiders yeah. in our life. I think yeah, wonderful. Yeah, I think you can. Yeah, yeah. I, I decided to just swallow eight spiders at once. That way, I'm done for the rest of my life. Or then you will have 16. That's possible. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I would like to discuss first your general career pathway. So you're French. You were born yeah, in Dijon. Yes. I'm... <laughs> so you were born in Dijon, but then you came to Paris for your undergrad. So you did your undergrad in biology. That's correct. Right? Perfect. Uh, but then you, for the, for the PhD, you moved to Germany, to the EMBL. Mm -hmm. What was the motivation for, for moving to Germany, to Heidelberg? Um, it was really science. So it was a little bit serendipitous, actually. Um, and I was very lucky when I was an undergrad at the Ecole Normale that uh, 
uh, each student had a mentor or a tutor who was like, you know, a faculty member who was um, basically advising them, advising us. And my mentor was somebody named Renaud de Rosa, and he was a um, researcher in um, evolutionary developmental biology. And uh, the reason I was matched with him was that I was really, even as a student, even actually ever since high school, I was fascinated with uh, evolution. That was really a, a lifelong uh, passion in a way. And anyway, so I was matched with him and uh, I asked him for um, another a good thing about the curriculum at the UNS is that we were encouraged to do a lot of research internships in different labs. And um, I asked Renault for advice on labs I could, you know, do internships in. And he gave me a list of, um, you know, PIs he thought were interesting, labs he thought were interesting. And one of the names on that list was Etlef Arendt, whom I didn't really know by name at the time. Actually, I, I think I had been exposed to some of his work, but I, I didn't really know him as a person. And um, uh, so one of the, on that, so he had a lab in, um, in, uh, in EMDL in, in Heidelberg. And um, um, so I just went through the lists of, of suggested names and I read uh, Detlef's papers and I was absolutely amazed by how uh, deep and thoughtful they were. Uh, like they really were at uh, a very, very, they were really very, very captivating, uh, uh, both conceptually and also experimentally. And uh, so I was very, very uh, uh, curious to, um, to, uh, to apply to, to, to his lab. So I applied to his lab for a master's one internship and I spent six months there uh, in my master's one. And uh, that was a fascinating environment. I mean, the MDL is a, is a very unique place. You know, it's a little bit like a, a scientific oasis in the middle of a mountain in Germany. It's a, it's a somewhat unique uh, context. And I, I assume many people uh, have, uh, if you get a chance to visit it, uh, if only for a conference, it's, uh, it's really a place I would encourage people to see. And uh, so, so it was very, very interesting. And uh, also the, the intellectual atmosphere in the lab was fascinating and there was a mixture of, you know, very rigorous uh, uh, in-depth science and also broad curiosity for the natural world and exploratory spirits that I really liked. And uh, so after the end of the internship, I basically knew it was a place where I could go back, uh, where I would like to go back, you know, if possible, for my PhD. And uh, it also helped, of course, that I knew where I was going, that I already had uh, a somewhat extended experience there. So uh, on and that's how I ended up applying then to the EMDL PhD program uh, um, when, when uh, a few years later. But then after, for did you immediately go to a postdoc after your PhD? Yes. So uh, after my PhD, I uh, so I spent um, actually five years in EMDL. So I spent you know three years and a half as a PhD student and something like a few months as a postdoc to to finish things, but still in the left lab. And uh, then I moved to, uh, to a postdoc in, uh, in UC Berkeley to actually start working with coenoflagellates. That's how I switched to coenos. Yeah, that's pretty nice. Um, and your motivation to go to Berkeley was, again, because of the science or, or you were like looking forward to a, a different environment in terms of science? Because it's very different, the mentality between the US and, and the Europe. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was really motivated by the science. So in a way, it... Uh, um, it's hard to optimize for many parameters at once. And in my case, I really was motivated by things I found intriguing. And uh, at the end of my PhD, basically, so my PhD was uh, focusing on reconstituting the evolution of muscle cells. So basically, the, you know, the cells that contract and mediate movement uh, in, uh, in diverse animals. And, uh, you know, when starting to write my thesis and also when reading more broadly about the topic, I ended up uh, feeling 
fascinated by the way it all started, by the way the control of shape and movement had emerged at the beginning of animal evolution. And one thing I was struck by from, you know, just looking at the literature or mining even public databases, like the, you know, the NCBI database for genomic sequences, was that a lot of uh, contractility genes that are fundamental for muscle cell function are actually found in the single cell relatives of animals. And some of them are actually very, very ancient, like myosin 2. You even find it in amoebae. So when, a, when an amoeba crawls, it's the same myosin 2, more or less, that you use to contract your muscles. But some others uh, that are more specialized evolve later, and in particular, many transcription factors key for muscle cell specification uh, evolved shortly before animals split from their closest unicellular relatives. So you find uh, homologs of muscle genes, in a way, in the genomes of, for example, coenoflagellates. And I was also uh, uh, fascinated by, you know, reading the... So that made me very intrigued about coenos, and I read quite of the morphological literature about coenos when I was a PhD student, really out of curiosity. And I was really fascinated by the fact that there was a huge wealth of morphological knowledge about their behavior, about their lifestyles that had been accumulated ever since people had first seen coenos in the 19th centuries, and then um, which had kept, you know, uh, uh, being uh, explored more in depth over the 20th century, but largely from, um, you know, just uh, an observational standpoint with the microscopes that were available at the time, so either light microscopes or electron microscopes. And it was clear that these organisms, even though they were unicellular, had complex behaviors, that they could explore their environment, that they had a lot of sensory modalities, that they could control their shape, and that a lot of the structures involved looked tantalizingly comparable to some of the fundamental structures of, of animal cells. But a lot of those observations had been, uh, you know, purely morphological. And I also knew that there was one lab in UC Berkeley in California, which had actually had propelled coenos into the world of modern cell biology and molecular biology, which was the lab of Nicole King. So they had published also a lot of nice papers over the year. And uh, what was clear about also Nicole King's lab is that it was also very exploratory. Like a lot of the lab's work revolved around understanding how coenos became multicellular, so how they switched to, to you know, this colony-forming behavior that I mentioned earlier. But some of it had to do with other things, like, for example, how sexual reproduction was controlled. Uh, that's something also that they had described only shortly before. Uh, so it was looked like an interesting lab to me in the sense that it looked like it was at the intersection of the model organisms I had ended up being fascinated by for evolutionary reasons, and also of the techniques that uh, would allow to, to study these problems from a, from a new angle. Um, it also looked to me like the phenomena I was interested in, which was, you know, cell contractility, were not really being researched in coenos. So it looked like an open direction to research that uh, uh, I could maybe develop if, uh, if Nicole King was open to it. And so that's, that was the motivation. And so it happened that the lab was in Berkeley, and it happens that Berkeley is a fascinating place. But I think I've been lucky, you know, in that sense, that uh, it, it could have been anywhere else, and I probably would have tried to go there anyway. Uh, but it ended up being in California, and that also was uh, was uh, turned out to be a place I loved. Yeah, that's nice. Did you ever consider staying in the U.S. and applying for a position there? Yes, yes, yes. It was. Uh, uh, it ended up being um, a choice at the end of my postdoc. You know, uh, between staying in the U.S. and trying to come back to to Europe, and. Um, um, in a way, you know, that choice was maybe more consequential than the choice of PhD and postdoc because I was applying at the time for faculty positions. And I was, you know, in the perspective of um, going somewhere I could settle on the long term. And so it ended up being a balance, you know, of cultural factors, personal factors, closeness to friends, closeness to family. 
that uh, on overall, the, some of these factors clearly favored Europe. It even favored Paris, I would say, um, specifically. But, um, you know, after five years in the Bay Area, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, where, where Berkeley is, it also ended up feeling a lot like home. I mean, it's a fascinating place in terms of nature, culture, uh, 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 science. Um, so I was a little bit split, but uh, it felt like all other things being equal, Europe was more interesting. Another factor was that my postdoc coincided exactly with the Trump presidency. When I arrived, uh, Trump was elected a few months after and uh, that was not the best time for scientists uh, uh, and also, you know, for, for immigrants in, uh, in, uh, in the U.S. And I was still among the immigrants who had it the easiest, but it was still stressful to even just be a postdoc because we, we felt that we, we were not completely uh, sure to be able to stay uh, in the U.S. as we would have uh, uh, under the previous presidency. Uh, so, uh, uh, and when I applied for positions, it was still the end of the Trump presidency. And uh, so I, that also favored Europe. That seemed like a, a safer place in that sense. Um, after I signed to go back to France, actually, Biden was elected shortly after. So it was an interesting feeling of closing the loop, in a way, that I had arrived and Trump had immediately been elected. And I decided to leave and, 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 uh, and Trump immediately lost the, the re-election. Uh, but that essentially was the way it ended up being for me. But I also really loved the scientific culture in Berkeley, and that's also a place where I could have seen myself living, I think. That's very interesting. In the end, how... We have to balance, really, how, as you said, different factors. Perhaps we can now go back a little bit in time and talk about the the beginnings of your scientific curiosity or, or, or where did you start with science. Uh, so I would like to know what was your first approach to science? Um, so the big scientific influence in my childhood was Jurassic Park. Um, so I was born in 1987. Jurassic Park came out in 1993. So I was six years old, so I was really of the generation that, you know, uh, saw it at the age where you're um, uh, the, the likeliest to be impressed, I think, the, the most uh, impressionable. And uh, that, uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was a big Hollywood movie, but in a way it was a Hollywood movie that tried to actually be pretty faithful to the science. There was this segment in the beginning that was explaining the, the very fanciful, you know, idea, uh, the very fanciful conceit in the movie by which they cloned dinosaurs. And there was a character called Mr. DNA who was explaining, uh, you know, in like a short educational video that visitors of the park were watching before, before actually visiting and seeing the dinosaurs, explaining what DNA was and how they had harvested it from a, 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 a mosquito trapped in amber and how they had reconstituted a, a, a dinosaur genome from that. And, uh, you know, that's, of course, very fanciful, but it tried to be as realistic as it could, uh, given the knowledge of the time, I would say. And uh, some of the characters in the movie were also scientists, right? I mean, somewhat unusually, uh, so some of them were paleontologists. Somewhat unusually, one of the main characters was a mathematician. It was uh, this chaos theorist. Um, and that, you know, sparked a, a very conventional, probably, childhood passion for dinosaurs. Uh, and uh, uh, I remember there was this magazine that was simply called Dinosaurs that was coming out every week. And in each issue, you had one bone. And if you kept collecting the, the, the issues, you could assemble a T-Rex skeleton at the end. And that magazine, actually, I looked at it again recently, and I'm pretty impressed by the, the level of technical depth and accuracy that it had. It was really good science popularization. Like, it really uh, uh, went in quite some detail for something that was aimed uh, for children. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I think I was just really lucky that there was this moment in popular culture that was uh, uh, where some parts of science had a really high profile, and I ended up being fascinated by that. 
And you know that evolved into a fascination with biology in general uh, over the years. And I think I've always kept it. And I, uh, uh, I, you know, when I was a teenager, I discovered the books by Stephen Jay Gould, who was this famous paleontologist who wrote um, collections of essays about biological evolution, which are extremely well written, extremely easy to read, but also extremely thoughtful. And I still read them with joy now. Um, and that also was a very big intellectual influence in. Uh, uh, you know, showing me uh, what, you know, biology was like and evolutionary biology was like. So I think that's, uh, yeah, that's essentially the way it went for me. That's amazing. I was also quite struck by Jurassic Park when it came out. I was born around the same time as you. I remember for many, many years that I wanted to be a paleontologist. In the end, I, I went for, for something completely different, but yeah, I remember. Yeah, paleontology is really a gateway. Uh, <laughs> gateway. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. Definitely. When you went to Berkeley, how I, I want to know more, more details about that. Was it a big lab or or, or more like a medium-sized lab? It was about um, it fluctuated. It was I think probably medium-sized. It fluctuated between uh, you know eight and fifteen people, depending on your interns and students and so on. Okay, so it, it was still quite a large lab. How was the transition? Because when you go from like having a, a postdoc position in a lab to having your own lab that usually it starts smaller than the one you were in before. Um, how was the transition of like, not only transitioning in terms of the role that you play, but also the people that is working on the same project? Yeah, so it is interesting because, you know, I did both my PhD and my postdoc in relatively big established labs. And um, so uh, both Detlef and Nicole were fairly busy and often traveling and the lab uh, uh, was uh, uh, already fairly well-established and, and productive for many years. Uh, so they were not at the bench anymore, for example. And uh, I never, for that reason, really directly see what it was like to be a new PI. Like, I never worked with somebody who was setting up their lab. I uh, was in labs that were already, uh, in a way, uh, uh, well-functioning and established. And, uh, you know, when starting my lab, in a way, I'm in the position of doing something that I never had a direct role model for which is to play this intermediate role where you still at the bench, you still have to train people at least, you know, no one else can teach people how to work with coenoflagellates. I have to do it. Um, even though now it's, uh, it's, uh, it's getting better, but in the beginning, I really was the only person who could do it. And also I'm still doing experiments. I actually want to be able to stay at the bench for a few years if I can, because to some extent I like doing it and I think I can still be useful there. Um, but uh, it is a little bit, it feels intermediate, like being between being a postdoc and being a fully established PI who often is further from the bench, even though not always. Some PIs manage to, to stay at the bench uh, until the end of their career. Uh, but I think it, uh, it, it, uh, it comes at, at a cost. It takes quite an effort to be able to do that. Um, and um, so in a sense, it's, uh, yeah, it feels a bit uh, like a weird hybrid um, between the PI job I've seen and the postdoc job I had. Um, I think what helped a bit is that as a postdoc, I had supervised quite a few students. So um, one interesting thing about the uh, American system is that PhD students very often do rotations. So their first year, they spent working in, uh, you know, they do maybe a three months in three different labs, and then that way they can choose uh, which lab makes more sense for them as a match. And uh, so I supervised quite a lot of rotation students, uh, including uh, one of them who ended up joining uh, Nicole King's lab, and with whom we had a really, really good collaboration. And uh, that already, and I supervised also undergrads, um, 
I also, when I was a postdoc, I worked very closely with two grad students, so uh, uh, those with whom we discovered C-Flexa, the, the coenoflagellate species that um, much of my lab works on right now. So it was a very close collaboration. And you know, these were already grad students who had a few years of experience, so I, I was not training them from scratch, but uh, it still felt like uh, not working entirely on my own already. And uh, so in that sense, I, I had some experience in supervising students or working at least closely with students when I was a postdoc. And that uh, was felt like it was very much reactivated when I started my own lab. So that helped the transition being smooth. But I'm really glad I had that earlier experience. Otherwise, it would have been really, really, uh, really tough. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think even like starting to mentor students at the very beginning, it's kind of a daunting task. But then... It is different when you mentor students now versus what you did as, as a postdoc. Uh, because now, for example, you have to hire people. Like, you have to choose them. H how do you approach those kind of things? Yeah, so, so that's a really good question. So I've been, you know, like, uh, I've discussed a lot with some of my senior colleagues in Pasteur when I started the lab, and everybody has been extremely helpful on giving a lot of advice. Uh, one of the pieces of advice I was given was to not try to go too fast, but actually hire people one at a time. Take time, you make sure you take time to properly train them and mentor them. And also, of course, make sure that you find a good match. When you start the lab and you only have a few people, you have to make sure these are the right people, right? And uh, so my approach has been, I think, fairly conventional in the sense that I really take time to know people before recruiting them. Uh, I, you know, uh, for uh, students, ideally, they spend an internship in the lab before uh, um, committing to a PhD, which is exactly what I did, you know, before committing to my PhD in Detlef's lab. Uh, for postdocs, I really try to interview them very much in depth. So they're invited on campus, they give a presentation, you have very long scientific discussion. They also meet all the members of the lab one-to-one, uh, -one. they have individual discussions, they often come for lunch or dinner or both. And uh, I check references, of course, very, very carefully. Um, so in a sense, I try to really get a full sense, not only scientifically, but also from a human standpoint of people I recruit and to yeah, maximize information, make sure there is compatibility between not only me and them, but also the existing lab members on them. So that's something uh, that uh, I actually was very inspired by uh, the recruitment process of my postdoc mentor, who was very extensive in in doing that and in paying attention to the vibe of the of the lab and to make sure that new recruits would be a good fit. Um, so that's the way I'm... And also, you know, it's of course fair on the other side, like uh, postdoc candidates, PhD candidates have to make sure they know me, that they know the lab, that uh, we are compatible, that we can work together, that we are excited by the same things. And um, so that's the way I've been doing it so far. And yeah, so far I've been extremely happy with the people I've recruited. I feel sometimes incredulous that they chose to come to, to, to a new lab, you know, and, and I feel very lucky. Um, but yeah, I think that's the way I've been doing it, being very slow and careful and as human as possible about it. That's nice. Do you think setting up expectations at the beginning, like during the interview process, it plays a role in it? Like, like really being direct with what you expect from the people and what they can expect from you? Yeah, for sure. I think it's uh, it's important that they know you know a lot of things about our our research. One of the constraints is that coenos are not easy organisms to work with. 
So uh, uh, um, I always, you know, tell them that we are in this trade-off where there are a lot of very interesting open questions, but there are still relatively few tools, even though we have more and more. And that, uh, yeah, it requires quite a lot of both persistence and creativity to solve problems. We don't have a huge community to, to rely on, even though there is a small Coeno community, which is very, very collaborative and altruistic. I think you're also lucky in this respect. But it is important, you know, that people know the style of research that we do, that they know the, the style of uh, mentorship they will receive, and that uh, they know it's a good match for them. It's not a good match for everyone. There are all kinds of personalities in science, and there are all kinds of research that uh, match the different kinds of personalities. So, uh, uh, yes, absolutely. It's important that it was both ways. What I was saying, maximizing information on both sides. People should know what they, they should expect. That's good to hear. You started in, in Pasteur in 2021 that's right so far i mean it's only been like less than two years but i don't know if you had to deal with issues and if they are different from what you had to deal with as a postdoc yeah i mean for sure the the the, the job is extremely different than than a postdoc um you know when you're a postdoc you're essentially a researcher and you apply a little bit for funding and you manage also a little bit people because you can supervise students But when you're a PI, you, you, know, you suddenly become uh, a, a researcher and an accountant and a manager and uh, uh, to some extent a salesperson. You have to sell your research to funding body. You have to present it in conferences. You become a recruiter. Uh, you become also responsible for, you know, like the, 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 the equipment in the lab, the repairs. You have to interface with the technical services. You have to interface with uh, uh, the, the service maintenance from the different providers. You have to buy equipment. Uh, you have to decide what equipment to buy. So the number of tasks you have to do becomes multiplied manifold. And um, of course, you know, uh, everybody, is, uh, everybody is only human. And uh, you, it's very unlikely that you will enjoy all of these tasks. It's very unlikely that you will be good at all of them. So you do have to find a way to, you know, do the best job possible at all, balance the time between all, get advice for the tasks that you're less naturally good at and that you've maybe never practiced before. And uh, so one big uh, challenge is to also plan your time because you have so many directions when you start a lab and all of them are important, but um, you uh, cannot do all of them at once. And uh, it depends a bit on personality, but for example, I, I'm not very good at switching between tasks. I'm like diving deep into a task and then focusing on it for a few hours, ideally uninterrupted, and then maybe switching to another. And that's a challenge, actually, to work in that way when you have a lot of different things to do, when also there is a lot of random encounters, people coming to your office, people calling you on the phone, asking you to deal with that or that thing. So planning the time around the diversity of things you have to do and sometimes knowing how to protect the time where you really have to focus, that was a challenge. And, you know, I'm still learning how to be a PI, I think. So I'm uh, learning how to do it. But that's something I really discovered as a PI. Uh, as a postdoc, the, num the diversity of tasks, I say, was, uh, was smaller and more manageable without any explicit, explicit organization. Now it requires a bit more uh, advanced, advanced planning. So we, we already discussed with uh, Nicolas the, the G5 position, basically. Mm -hmm. But I would like to have your perspective on why this is a, a, a particular and an interesting position uh, to apply to. Yeah, so it's uh, it's potentially um, you know it's a PI position. So in France, you a lot of um, uh, research positions are staff scientist positions where uh, you join the CNRS or the INSERM, and often you would join a pre-existing team, and that's different than uh, maybe more uh, American type PI position where you really start a new thing from scratch. 
In my case, it felt like the right match because I was studying something that was relatively new in France, which was, you know, studying flagellates. So it made sense to start a new team because of the, of the topic and because of the, the openness of the questions. It was really largely motivated in my case, again, by the science I was interested in doing. If I had done a different type of research, it maybe would have made more sense to apply as a chargé de recherche in a pre-existing team. And I think I could also have liked that. I mean, it comes with maybe less administrative burden at first, even though I'm sure chargé de recherche also have a lot of, uh, of stuff to, to deal with. Yeah, I thought the G5 position in Pasteur looked like a very interesting position because it matched the, the kind of uh, uh, um, research I wanted to do. And it comes with, uh, you know, the kind of support that you get from other big institutes across Europe and across the world, which is that you get some startup package to actually recruit people and buy equipment and pay for consumables. And you don't get that in many other French institutes. You, you get that to some extent in, you get that, of course, in, uh, for example, in the MDL, in the Max Planck in Germany, uh, in the Quick Institute also in the UK, for example, or in, uh, in many American institutes. But in France, Pasteur is, um, uh, in a, I think, in a somewhat rare situation that it can offer that. It also comes with a lot of support from, uh, from colleagues. So we have, uh, again, a matchmaking system with senior colleagues who can ask, act as mentors. Uh, there was a lot of help I received from directors of departments when I started, from other G5 colleagues who had started a few years earlier, from uh, more senior colleagues. I, I feel like I've really been... Uh, uh, very fortunate to be so supported. It also comes with administrative support, actually. So we have a, an administrative assistant, which we share with three other labs. Uh, uh, and that's extremely precious to have somebody, actually, who is uh, uh, an expert in paperwork. And uh, I think it was having much, much harder without the support of that person. Uh, her name is Rizlad. And uh, also uh, the, uh, the G5 position, another nice thing, which I think is relatively new, is that we have a support group for new group leaders. So uh, the new G5s we started within a, a bracket of maybe two years. We meet regularly uh, either with somebody from, from administration or even by ourselves to exchange tips and to, to discuss our experience. So Nico Rastovan is one of my colleagues in my cohort. And that actually was very, very helpful. Had actually a lot of very useful discussions with Nico about how to hire when I started, and he really helped me a lot. So yeah, all, overall, I think that that's an interesting position. It, uh, it comes with the challenge, you know, of building a new team and switching to independence, in my case, directly after the postdoc. It's not the absolute best position in the world. I think it depends on the, the research you want to do. I think in my situation, it was the, the best position I could apply to and the best I, I would get. And uh, yeah, I'm very, very happy I, I'm here now. It, it's very good to know that there are like very supportive positions uh, with the institutions. So in terms of like the different positions that are available, did you apply to anything else, either in France or elsewhere in Europe? Yeah, I wanted, I was, I mean, I was fairly open-minded actually be, between, you know, do, being a PI or being a, a staff scientist. I was not close to it, even though, of course, I would have needed to find a lab that was uh, ready to accept craniofragilites. <laughs> Um, uh, or being even a university lecturer, like I was also considering applying for Maître de Conférence uh, in, in France. I started with the PI jobs because of the calendar, I think, like a lot of offers were coming up and it was not yet the recruiting season for CNRS or for Maître de Conférence. So I started with applying to PI jobs and uh, I, I, because I got the one in Pasteur, I then did not apply to the other positions. But I was actually very open to, 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 different, to different things. And uh, so, yes, I applied to, to a few others. Uh, again, because I got passed up pretty quickly, I didn't apply to so many others 
but I applied to the MBL again. Um, and uh, so I was interviewed, and that was actually a, a super interesting interview process. Uh, I did not get the position, but I'm still glad I, I, uh, I applied, if only because the interview was so interesting, and we can talk a bit more about it. And uh, I also applied to another position, which was the, in Lyon, the Institut de Génomique Fonctionnelle, which, was, um, uh, which is a, a smaller institute with something between 10 and 20 labs, I think, which is uh, focused on really organismal biology and understanding organisms in an integrative way from the genome to, you know, like the, the physiology and the evolution. And that was a very intellectually dynamic uh, environment, a smaller institute than Pasteur, but also a place where it seemed there were great colleagues. So uh, uh, that one I also would have been very interested in, uh, in going, I think. But I ended up choosing Paris and, and Pasteur in, uh, in part because of the G5 position, in part also because for personal reasons, I uh, liked more the idea of living in Paris. So in total, I think yeah, I only applied to three places, but also because you know I got this one quickly and I, I knew it was uh, uh, my first choice if I got it, so I accepted it. But uh, I would have applied to many others otherwise. Yeah, I was going to ask if, if this one was your first choice. That's nice. I'm intrigued now about the differences in the interviews uh, for EMBL and Pasteur. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, yeah, the interview in EMBL is a, it has a somewhat unique format in the sense that they organize a symposium. Uh, so all the candidates actually come to campus uh, at the same time. And so we all visited the MBL with a cohort of something like six other maybe candidates. And we got to see each other's research presentation. We got to go to dinner all together and with the committee. And uh, that's something that uh, uh, I don't know if Pasteur does that actually usually. But um, uh, in, when I interviewed for Pasteur, it was already during COVID, so it was online. So uh, I did not get to see the other D5 candidates, right? But uh, so the EMBL symposium format, I thought, was super interesting. Like I met very, very interesting other junior researchers and I'm still in touch with, uh, you know, I think pretty much all of them actually now. Yeah, it, uh, it, was, it was a very, very, uh, very nice, uh, nice experience in that sense. And psychologically also, it deflected a bit the pressure of uh, doing a job interview. You know, I could have the feeling I was going to an interesting symposium. Yeah, that I think was a very nice experience. Uh, in Pasteur, it was, you know, it was constrained also by COVID, right? I did everything... Uh, by uh, by video from California because I was not physically allowed to uh, I would have been physically allowed to go to France but I would not have been allowed to re-enter the US there were still very strong restrictions so I had to do everything in early morning because of the time difference you know interviewing from uh, either from my living room or from the lab in uh, in Berkeley so that was uh, that was uh, a challenge but uh, it was uh, I still you know followed the strategy of trying to maximize information talking uh, with as many colleagues as possible, trying to understand what it was like in Pasteur. And in the end, I felt I could get a good sense of what the Institute was like, even without having visited it. Is it a bit unusual for, I feel, uh, ANS scientists um, to not do an internship in Pasteur when ah, they are yes, younger? That's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I don't know, actually. I don't know the statistics. Um, yeah. yeah uh, it's, you know, I think I... Uh, I didn't do so many internships, right? I did like uh, two or, or three, and so I did uh, uh, with three actually. I did one in Oxford, and then one in Curie, and then one in the EMBL. Uh, mm. And um, uh, so, you know, statistically, uh, I, I, I think uh, uh, it's a small sample. <laughs> so the fact that Pasteur is not in it, uh, yeah. I think it's just random. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that, that's true. I, I I could have done internship in Pasteur, and I didn't. But I think I was very focused on evolutionary biology and. There were not so many evolutionary labs in Pasteur maybe at the time. I think now there are more, not only mine, but 
quite a few of those. Yeah, probably the field changed a bit in, inside the institute. My last real question is, what has been the most rewarding experience during this whole transition for you? Um, yeah, it's it's hard to know, you know, because there are such so many different kinds of experience, right? I mean, there there's a, a there's a human side, of course, where you you interact with people and you you share excitement, and that's a very important part of what keeps me going. There's a scientific side where you you are more in a dialogue with nature and you 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 try to trick nature into revealing its secrets, and it's extremely exciting when you unlock something, and that also is an important part of what keeps me going. Um, I think one very um, uh, striking memory is the discovery of C. flexa, which is this uh, uh, coenoflagellate species that uh, we co-discovered with some colleagues from Berkeley back when I was a postdoc. And uh, so it's, uh, it was basically at the time a new species of uh, coenoflagellate, which we found essentially by chance, actually. And uh, so the way the story goes is that we, after my second year of postdoc, we went to a field trip to Curaçao, which is an island of the Caribbean. And we went there with Nicole King and with two grad students, uh, Ben Larson and Tess Linden. And we went there really for, uh, you know, without having a clear research plan in mind. We went there because there was a, a workshop on uh, um, uh, protistology, so the study of, of pre-living single-celled eukaryotes, or actually single-celled eukaryotes in general. Uh, that happened there, and we were interested in going there to exchange techniques with some colleagues. And uh, as I said, you know, there are coenoflagellates, say we were in all aquatic environments, so we were interested also in simply sampling across Curaçao to look for what kind of coenoflagellates we would find there. Uh, but there was no reason to expect anything particularly unusual, I would say, uh, at first. Uh, it happened that uh, uh, during a tour of the island, we uh, um, collected water from a splash pool, in, uh, so these are basically pools that are uh, on the shore, so very close to the ocean, and which are fed by the waves. So they're not tide pools, but they're splash pools. And we collected a sample of water there, but uh, you know, without really, uh, again, expecting anything in particular. And it was not even a place where we went for scientific sampling motivations. We went there because it was we were touring the island, and we happened to 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 go there at some point. And so we brought uh, those samples back to the marine biology station, which is in Curaçao. And we, uh, uh, and it was actually a stepwise discovery. You know, first we found some small coenoflagellates uh, that were shaped in chain colonies, and these are basically uh, basically lines of cells, piles of cells that are swimming around. And we were very excited to see those because we were not completely sure this had ever been seen in nature. We knew that some of our coenos were forming them in the lab, but we were not sure that uh, they had been described directly in a wild sample before. And actually, maybe they had, but we we just didn't know. And just seeing them was, was exciting. So it was a motivation to go back to that site. And then we went back. And uh, uh, I remember it was an evening pretty late. We looked at samples from those same splash pools. So we collected many others. Uh, and um, we uh, saw uh, the first thing we noticed were coenoflagellate colonies that were shaped like trees. And basically, so these were very, very, very large colonies uh, uh, which were branched. And at the tip of each branch, was uh, one coenoflagellate. But it was clear that the entire rest of the tree, the entire structure, the branches and the trunk, this was all extracellular matrix which had been secreted by the coenos somehow. And those trees had a very, very beautiful geometric shape. They were different than other tree-shaped coeno colonies that we had seen before. And so we were extremely excited about seeing those. And uh, we were actually interrupted in this observation by um, the fact that there was a, a barbecue dinner with all the people who attended the um, 
attending the workshop that we had to go to. And so we went there and we basically, I think, annoyed everyone by telling them, oh, we found those trees, aren't, aren't they incredible? And uh, uh, I think no one was as excited about them as we were, but uh, we were like, okay. And then we came back after the barbecue, which was pretty late. And, you know, we were not uh, drunk, but we, we were, um, you know, we were in a cheerful mood after a long night. And I think it was already something like midnight. And we went back to, to the lab to look a little bit more at the samples. So uh, this was with the two grad students. So we were in a, already in a strange mood, you know, because it was late at night and it was this uh, uh, unusual context. And uh, we wanted to just see if we could find more trees. And then we found yet another species of, uh, of uh, interesting organism. And what we could see was that it was a, a colony of microbes that formed something like a monolayer of cells, so something like a sheet, uh, a bit like an epithelium, but, you know, completely detached from any organism, free-swimming. And uh, we could see that this colony of organisms could deform very quickly, so a little bit like an animal, like it looked like it had a very exploratory behavior. Um, and it was shifting shapes in front of our eyes. And by looking more closely, we thought it was maybe even a colony of coenoplagellates. So actually the group we were interested in, but we were not sure because it was a wild sample. And, you know, you, you, you get all kinds of things in those samples, of course, all kinds of organisms. So it was a super strange discovery moment of, of seeing this species that uh, um, didn't look like anything we expected to see, that looked super interesting scientifically. And also seeing it in this very, very strange context, you know, being back late at night alone in the lab without anyone to show it to. Uh, Nicole King had already returned to Berkeley uh, at the time. So I think we were lucky to be able to make movies to actually, uh, uh, in, you know, record like those very early observations uh, because, uh, you know, we thought of if this organism doesn't survive in culture, if we lose it and uh, if we admit that we only saw it once uh, uh, super late at night, nobody will believe us. And I think it was, yeah, it was a great moment. Yeah, first because of the completely serendipitous finding, the super unusual context, but also because uh, it was a shared moment with two, uh, two, two PhD students who, who I was working with at the time. And we ended up collaborating, you know, on the description of this species. We are three co-first authors on, this, uh, on the papers that described uh, this species. So we, we then were lucky. And I think that uh, it was a lot of hard work, but also a part of, of luck that we could put it in culture and then study it in the lab. And we eventually named it C-Flexa, so we had to, to name the, the species. But um, we are three co-first authors on the papers that describe it. And uh, I think I was also very lucky that uh, we were all, I, I hope, lucky that we ended up being those three people in particular because we worked extremely well together. We all had a, a shared enthusiasm for describing this organism and, and understanding how it worked. All very had, I think, uh, we could all partake in each other's scientific interests and share work in a way that was collegial and collaborative and there was never um, even an ounce of competition between us it was always very mutually supportive um, and so yeah that's i mean that i think inevitably stands out as an experience both uh, as a discovery and also as a, um, as a collegial interaction that's nice yeah i think that really highlights how the team uh, you're working with is it's really an essential part of science everyone like in the general population, they keep thinking of scientists as like this kind of, like almost like a hermit in, in, a, in, in a basement working on their stuff. But actually, I think it's a really social thing, like how we, we really push each other uh, to do better things when we work as a team. Yeah. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I yeah. think in this case, there was a great complementarity of perspectives and uh, expertises. So uh, Ben Larson was, a, he still is a physicist, so he was... He had a great intuition, actually, I think, for the geometry and the physics of the system. And uh, Tess and myself, we were um, evolutionary biologists, but we also uh, 
uh, had different backgrounds. Uh, she had done uh, quite some uh, population genetics as a grad student, and I was more coming from the microevolution side. And you know, because we are looking at a completely new organism, uh, I think all intuitions and all perspectives ended up being very complementary and very, very useful to, to, to really approach it from all kinds of different angles and characterize it in an integrative way. And the, uh, I think the interaction was more than the sum of its parts. And that's been the case very often in my career, actually. Like out of, uh, you know, I think I had five first author papers from PhD and postdoc and also internships. And three of them are actually co-first author papers. And I've always really enjoyed a lot working with, you know, as an equal, with, uh, with colleagues and bouncing ideas back and forth. And it's always been much more than the sum of its parts. And uh, yeah, for sure, this aspect of science that we do science also as a group and also for the community you know we also do it to share findings that other will be excited by and build upon that's a very important dimension i think that's a nice note to end the conversation today so thank you so much Thibault, for taking the time to talk with me uh, i'm gonna give you the chance now to plug anything you want projects conferences yes so i mean for people who are interested in coinoflagellate <laughs> there is every few years a coinoflagellate workshop and uh we are working to organize one within a few months, and uh, it's a uh, it's a great way for the community to uh, to stay in touch and uh, and uh, and, um, and you know get to know each other and support each other, uh, uh, investigating new model organisms. And it's not only open to people who work on coenos, but also on often on other close unicellular relatives of animals. Yeah, that's super nice. So thank you so much again, and hope everyone else uh, enjoyed the conversation. And we'll be back in the next episode. And that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed listening, then hit that subscribe button to get the latest updates straight to wherever it is you're listening. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple and follow us on Twitter at MotionPod. You can find links to things we've just discussed on our website, preprintsinmotion.com. If you'd like to tell us what you think, then send an email, shout at us on Twitter, or shout at us if you see us walking down the street. This has been a JMJ production, generously supported by our friends at ASAP Bio. Until next time, have a good week.